Good morning. That's right. That's who I am. I'm David. Uh, I'm the liturgist here at the church, but this morning it is my pleasure to be delivering uh, the message as we move through the book of John, uh, the way we decide uh, who's preaching on what in John is actually just by date of availability. So you never know what section you're going to get and how challenging it's going to be. And this one was a bit of a tough one for me. Uh, but as I was going through it, uh, thinking about the themes that, you know, seemed to resonate with me when I was praying over the scripture, a poem kept coming up uh, in my mind, uh, which uh, is by one of my favorite poets, Emily Dickinson who many of you are probably familiar with. It's a poem that I teach in one of my classes, and it has the notoriety of being the only poem that I have memorized. Uh, you'd think as an English teacher and as a, a literature major, I'd have a lot of poems memorized, but I don't. I just have this one, and before it sounds like I'm bragging, it is only eight lines long, and if you actually write it out as a sentence, it's just one sentence. Uh, but here's what we're gonna do. It's gonna be on the screen, if we have it. Is it up there? See, I'm not looking, so you can catch me if I mess up. I've never done this in front of this big of a crowd, so let's see. Uh, this is by Emily Dickinson. The soul's distinct connection with immortality is best disclosed by danger or quick calamity, as lightning on a landscape exhibits sheets of place not yet suspected, but for flash and click and suddenness. Did I do it? Yeah. All right. So I told you, I can't, I can't act, I can't be too proud. It's a very short poem. Uh, but uh, the reason I kept thinking of it is part of what Dickinson's saying here uh, is that uh, she says the soul's distinct connection with immortality. These big ideas such as, you know, what is my connection to the immortal world, to the spiritual world, she says, is best disclosed by danger. And when I think of this, I think of when we're confronted with moments of danger, those things often jolt us out of our kind of repetitive, mundane, everyday life. Because we get caught up in the rhythms of this world, in the rhythms of everything we have to do, and sometimes we don't have our mind on the deeper things. But sometimes something happens and it jolts us out of that, and all of a sudden we go, what, what is the meaning of my existence here? What is the meaning of my life? Uh, I remember a moment that happened to me that kind of illustrated this in my experience, uh, and it gave me a, a very strong feeling that kind of resonated with this realization of, of looking at the world through a new perspective, through a brush of, with danger. Uh, this was years ago uh, where I had, uh, decided to be ambitious, and whenever I decide to be ambitious, uh, bad things happen. Uh, and I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to go every morning, early in the morning, before the sun even comes out, I'm going to go take a walk and meditate and get exercise. Uh, and so the first time I tried this, I took a walk, and we live in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes, right next to the cliffs, uh, and on the, on, we have a path that goes right on the side of the bluffs. So I got up, like at five in the morning before the sun had even come out, uh, I take my dog with me and we go on the path alongside the side of the cliff. And uh, we're making a turn and the sun's, you know, the, the, the dawn is starting, the light of the dawn starting to come out. And I see ahead of us, maybe 
50 yards away, there's a person on the path. Uh, not that uncommon, it's a pretty popular kind of jogging path. There's a lot of people sometimes out early in the morning, but this person's moving a little bit erratically. Uh, and we keep going, and then I, I uh, hear him say, hey you, you, get away from here. Don't come over here. And I was going to turn around because I was happy to comply with that. Uh, but then I saw that he went up to the fence which separates the edge of the bluff and the path. And on the other side of the fence is about two, foot, two feet and then a cliff, uh, you know, 100-foot cliff, more, more than that is what Sandy's telling me, a really big cliff. Uh, if you were to fall, it would, it would be certain death. Uh, and he climbs over the fence. Uh, so he's on the cliff side of it now, and all of a sudden I said, I can't leave now, because this guy's on the other side of the fence. Uh, so I started walking towards him, uh, and he's still yelling at me, at, at, at everything else, at the world. Uh, and I get there because I want to tell him to get back on the other side of the fence. Uh, and that's when I realize he has a gun. Uh, so he not only is on the other side of the fence, but he has a handgun. Uh, and he is uh, in an altered state. Uh, he starts yelling at me. He's paranoid. He thinks I'm a police officer. He's going off on a lot of different things, obviously under some sort of influence of something. Uh, and I just said, I, I can't leave, because if I go to call the police, I didn't have my phone on me, I don't want this guy to jump or do something like that while I'm gone. So I, just, I have to stay and try to get him to the other side. Uh, and so I talked to him for uh, you know, maybe 10 minutes until finally a police helicopter comes, and other people had seen this and reported it, and then they radio down to me, or they, you know, on their uh, uh, speaker, hey, you with the dog, get out of there. And then so, <laughs> and so I said, okay. But I told him, like, you got to get rid of your gun. I didn't want anything bad to happen, uh, you know, when him and the cops met, and I didn't want anybody to get hurt. And I'll say this, sometimes I always forget to st say my, the ends of my stories. Uh, everything was okay in the end. He did, uh, I think he went and barricaded himself in a, uh, uh, one of the mansions there, like their backyard, but there was a little bit of a standoff, but they were able to apprehend him without anybody getting hurt. Uh, but I then went home, and I told Sandy what had happened, and I said, okay, I'm going to go to work now. Uh, and so I go to work, I call in, I say, hey, I, I'm going to be a little late for my first period, can you uh, uh, get, me, get somebody to cover for me? And they said, yeah, what's going on? I'm like, well, I just, you know, had to deal with a guy on the edge of a cliff with a gun. Uh, and they said... <laughs> And they said, okay. Uh, and then when I, got, when I got there and got into class, that's when it hit me. I'm like, I am in no state to be working right now. You know, you have your adrenaline. You're like, I'm fine. That's, that's nothing. Then you get there and you go, oh, my gosh, I'm kind of in shock uh, from, from all of that. From, you know, uh, even though I never felt like this guy was holding a gun on me, you know, I don't spend a lot of time around guns. So, you know, that was scary. And he's on the edge of the cliff and there's police and it's all a lot. Uh, and... I bring up this story because I don't know how best to otherwise illustrate that the feeling I had for several days was a different type of reality. I had a perspective where all of a sudden, kind of like, I just remember driving to work when I'm, you know, I'm like, none of this stuff matters. <laughs> like, you know, looking at different stores and stuff like that. I just, I was infused with these ideas of, of danger, of life and death, uh, and it seemed to me a way of uh, illustrating what Dickinson was saying, 
that sometimes when you get those brushes with danger, everything changes for a minute. She says, it's like lightning on a landscape. It lights everything up for a moment. But I think she's smart to use that metaphor because just like lightning on a landscape, it flashes, you see things, you see things in a different perspective, but then it fades. And after a few days after this experience, things went back to normal. I got back into the flow of everyday life. And I bring all of this up is because I think that this often happens to us when it comes to our faith. There's been a lot of moments in my life where I've experienced kind of the reality of God's presence, where, like, I'm on fire. But then there's been moments where that's faded, where I start to feel more doubt, even though a little while ago it seemed so real to me, it seems much more distant. I always think of the Israelites just leaving Egypt, the same people that had seen the plagues of Egypt, the same people that had seen the Red Sea parted, that had seen a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Those were the same people who had the most dramatic manifestations of the existence of God, the same people that started to doubt once they hit the wilderness, that built the golden calf, that started to rely back on those old habits of Egypt. I think what we see in this section of John that we're focusing on today is a similar moment because what we have here is Jesus uh, at the end of what, they, what uh, theologians often call in this part of John the book of signs, which is this is the part where Jesus was doing his miracles and giving signs. So these same people that had seen miraculous healings, had seen the loaves of bread miraculously multiplied, who had just seen most dramatically this great miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These same people, we open up in John 12, 37, are in a state of unbelief. Even though they had witnessed all these miracles, even though they must have had experiences where they say this guy Jesus must be the real deal, they drifted back into unbelief. So let's read this section. It's John 12, starting at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about it. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, had believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to the world to judge, but to save the world. 
There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who had sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. As I kind of alluded to at the beginning, this was a bit of a challenging text for me. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, Jesus is saying a lot of things. Uh, There's references to other scriptures, a lot to work with. Uh, But if I'm being honest, the first thing that hit me when I first read this was I got a little nervous because I I get a little bit nervous anytime Jesus talks about judgment or condemnation. I kind of get used to it in the Old Testament. Uh, But when Jesus is talking about it, I get a little nervous. When he says, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. That makes me check myself a little bit. I go, okay, I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And so what is Jesus talking about here? What, What is he talking about when he's talking about judgment, and it seems like the main idea here all seems to hinge on belief. He says, no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And we know from the text that the problem here that Jesus' audience and the religious leaders themselves have is that they, quote, still would not believe in him. And I think about that for myself. I preached two weeks ago uh, and mentioned uh, some of my earliest years of teaching. When I talked about it, I talked about how that was a time largely characterized by anxiety for me, exhaustion, even depression. And I had some wonderful people after the service, you know, say, I'm sorry you went through that. You know, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that. Uh, And to be honest, that was wonderful. But to be honest, I never feel very vulnerable sharing about my anxiety. I don't, I don't have a lot of shame about it. I also just, I, I tend to think everybody out there is fairly anxious, so I always think they probably feel the same way. Uh, but when I look at this text, there's something else that's a little more painful to admit, which is that I often struggle with doubt. That there are moments when I even ask myself the questions does any of this stuff that I believe, is any of it even real? Is this just foolishness? There's plenty of voices in the world around us that would tell you that, that everything we're talking about here is pure mythology or folklore. And sometimes those voices cause me to feel moments of doubt. And then I read a text like this and I get a little bit nervous. And even though there's been times, like I said, where God seems so real to me, there have been times where I've doubted. But as I've gone through this text and I've thought about that, I had to remind myself and realize, as I read what a lot of people said about this, is that the central element here is unbelief. And when I was reading this, I realized doubt is different than unbelief. Doubt comes with belief. If you choose to believe something, you're going to have to deal with doubt. You're going to have to work through doubt. Doubt comes along with belief, and it can be fleeting and sure. You can give too much power to your doubt and maybe pave the road towards unbelief. 
But sometimes doubt is just part of choosing to believe something. Whereas unbelief seems like more of a choice to reject something. And I know I haven't done that, even though I struggle with doubt. And as I was studying this, I came across a quote which I've heard before, and I tried to do my best as an English teacher to find who to tell you said it, but they keep attributing it to everybody under the moon. Uh, some, some people say Richard Rohr, the great Franciscan writer, said it, or Anne Lamott, or Paul Tillich, but <clears throat> I think maybe it's just an idiom at this point, but the quote is this, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it is certitude. Certitude meaning you already understand it all. Now, it's an interesting idea that the opposite of faith is complete certainty. And I think that that's somewhat supported by the Bible. Paul says that we live by faith, not by sight. That means we don't necessarily believe in something that we can completely see and understand. What we have is faith, and faith is trust. Trust in a God even when we can't see him. Faith is hope in his goodness. Certitude tends to be a rigid and unbending belief in your own understanding. And if I think of anyone that characterizes that the best, well, in these scriptures, it's, it's the religious leaders and the Pharisees. What they had was they had certitude certitude in their own understanding. And I, see, I think we see this uh, discussed with different wording when John quotes this verse from Isaiah that says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts. This is a, a hard uh, passage to deal with because it seems to be almost suggesting that they had no choice about it. Uh, the theologians I read through tend to think that's not what John is doing here. What John is doing is trying to connect this unbelief, the hardness of heart, to that of the Pharaoh in Egypt, whose heart was always hardened, and even the hardness of heart of the Israelites, who continually rejected God's prophets throughout the Old Testament. And I believe this hardness of heart can be connected to this idea of certitude. They're both characterized by being rigid and unbending, to have a calloused, rocky heart. We see throughout Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders that it's their certitude in their understanding of the law that gets in the way of them understanding what Jesus is doing. The cornerstone of their faith becomes their own understanding. And we know from Proverbs chapter 3, that we are supposed to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, submit to him, and he will make our paths straight. And here again, we get this difference between trust and certitude. Faith is about trust. Faith is about trusting that God will be good to us, even when we can't see how it's going to happen. Even when we have doubts not only about what we believe in, but where our lives are going, whether or not God is going to help us, 
we still choose to trust in him. Of course, there's a problem with that. That's that trust makes you vulnerable. It means you're giving up control. You no longer can have all of your trust in your own understanding. You have to hand it over to God. You have to live in a state of dependence and reliance on his mercy. But of course, the upside to that, as opposed to having a hardened heart, this seems to keep your heart soft. And instead of being rigid and hardened like the hearts of the Pharisees, your heart becomes flexible enough to follow the movement of the Spirit of Jesus. It has to be flexible to follow wherever Jesus goes. And I believe that if we truly live in that state of dependence, in faith, even if we suffer from moments of doubt, we can be certain of one thing, and that's that Jesus will have mercy on us. We might not be certain about every single thing we have to think and believe, but we can be certain in the mercy of Jesus. We even see it in this text. This moment that I first thought of is this warning of judgment. Leon Morris in his commentary says, but his last word is not one of condemnation. It's one of tender appeal. Jesus came that men might believe and be saved. And when we reread this text, we see that Jesus, even when he's faced with the unbelief of the crowd, he still throws out this last lifeline of mercy. When he tells them to believe, look at the language of him speaking. When he is in the face of the unbelief of the people, it says, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me. He says, believe in me, and you will no longer stay in the darkness. Jesus cried out in the face of unbelief. And we learn that Jesus doesn't only show mercy to those with perfect faith, if such a person exists. He shows mercy to the person that asks him for mercy. You don't need certitude. You can suffer from doubt. But what's necessary is that you always keep your face and eyes on Jesus. And you can have certainty that if you reach out to him, his merciful love will find you wherever you are. I'll just close with this real quick. I shared in that last sermon the state of anxiety I had during those early years of teaching, exhaustion. But within those years, I also had some of the most meaningful, deep experiences of the presence of God, because I was raw with exhaustion. And there were moments where all I could do was say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And I still remember those years as bittersweet, because there's a lot of emotional pain, but Jesus kept finding me whenever I'd call out to him. So we keep our hearts soft, Keep our eyes on Jesus and trust in his mercy. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of love and mercy. You didn't come to give us a test to see if we understand everything. You came with an outstretched hand to rescue us and offer your mercy to us. So I pray for anyone in this room today that suffers from doubt, that suffers from fear, that they would know you were there offering your mercy despite it all. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.